0: If you have a Bible, would you please open up to Ephesians chapter 1. Um, If you're not used to a Bible, we're in the New Testament, second half of the Bible, and if you kind of flick, I don't know, almost to the end, um, but if you need a page number, if you've got one of our pew Bibles, not that we have pews, but you know what I mean. (laughs) You can't say that too quickly either. Don't think about that. Okay, 568, page 568, can you take that? All righty. Uh, It was so awesome to sing with Shane and Shane this morning. Uh, It was fantastic. That's a Christian pun. All righty. But genuinely, it was really awesome. I like that vibe. We should do that more often. That's cool, huh? All right, Ephesians chapter 1. If you need a title for this message, it's a prayer for spiritual illumination. And we're in verses 15 through 23. Um, If you're new and visiting, uh, each week, I mean, I say that we're like six weeks in, but at this church, we like to go through the Bible uh, and we normally just choose a book and work our way through it. And so we've chosen um, as like our introductory book for this uh, new church plan, the book of Ephesians, a great book that kind of outlines who we are and what God has called us to do as Christians individually and as a church corporately. Uh, And that's why we chose Ephesians. And you can see there a little tagline, planned in eternity, displayed in community. And that's one way you could kind of summarize the whole whole book of Ephesians. Last week, we saw the glorious and amazing truth that we have every spiritual blessing in Christ. Um, And Paul kind of just goes in one huge long sentence, 200 plus words in the Greek language. He praises God that we are chosen by God. Um, to be adopted as sons, that we are redeemed um, by the blood of his son, Jesus Christ, and we are sealed by the Holy Spirit. And Paul just goes and goes and goes, and each time he says to the praise of his glorious grace. So we're coming on the back of this great moment of praise and um, exaltation of God the Father, and naturally Paul then moves into prayer, and a prayer which really kind of fits what he just talked about. Because as I was preaching last week, and I was preaching through those, those sections of all these incredible truths, I was like, it's, it's hard to even comprehend the nature of them. And if you weren't here last week, go back and read verse 3 to 14. And so we're going to see in this prayer that Paul's really praying that, basically, that we'd get it, that we'd actually have this illumination from the Holy Spirit, that we'd understand what is really going on spiritually. Because it's so easy to get lost in the mess of life in this world, to not actually see true spiritual reality. But before we get there, let me read our passage this morning. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 15. For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, Remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him. Having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know... far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age but also in the one to come. And he, that is God, put all things under his, that is Jesus, feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him, who fills all in all. Let's pray. Almighty God, we plead with you and ask that you would bless the preaching of your word. In Jesus Christ's name we pray. Amen. I was at a conference on Thursday, and it was a conference that was dedicated to kind of understanding some of the trends and things that go on in our world. Um, It was was based on a survey done by Barna Research Group into millennials, and not just millennials in Australia, but millennials across the world. That is basically anyone who's between the age of 18 to 35, which is pretty much 95% of this entire congregation. (laughs) And the surprising thing about this trend is that across the world, wherever you're at, if you're in that age group, you're more likely to be like someone in Sydney or Paris or London or Cape Town in your age group than the people in your own country. Um, They call it the connected generation. Um, Because of the influence of our screens on us, the way that our screens and global technology is discipling us, we're actually really similar all across the world in these different age groups. And one of the similarities which goes across the whole connected generation, which probably corresponds to the way you kind of think about life a little bit, is a heightened state of anxiety and fear about the future. Uh, One of the salient trends was something like 40% of millennials are really uncertain feel unconnected to the people around them, and are afraid about the future. They feel not their sense of calling or purpose, but their sense of dread. Um, and one of the insights that they gained from this was, because we live in an age of opportunity, we have so many things we could do, people in our generation are often you know, fearful of missing out on what they could really and would, should really do, uh, the tyranny of opportunity. Uh, and so we go and think, am I in the right career? Am I doing the perfect job? Am I going to succeed? Am I going to you know, become amazing? In fact, one in five millennials in America think that they will be famous. Uh, which by definition cannot happen. <laughs> Otherwise, you'd have, you know, 80 million people famous, which is not going to happen. But we have this sense in our millennial generation that we have to be something, that we don't know the future. The future looks bleak because of our political landscape, because the environment is crashing in around us, because things aren't going as we want. Uh, we have this disassociation because we have so much wealth and opulence and joy, you know, in the blessings, yet It doesn't always correspond to our hearts. We have so much out there, but so little within us. And so as I was listening to all this data, I was just thinking, how does this relate to us and as us as a church? Well, the passage that we have today is going to cut through our cultural moment. Uh, because no matter what our circumstances and whether or not you relate to the millennial study about, you know, anxiety and fear about the future and fear of not maximizing your potential and fear that maybe one day you won't be famous, um, you know, which actually I used to think, I used to think one day I'd be famous. That's what I hoped. So I'm part of that statistic. I realized I'm not going to be, and I'm, it's actually kind of good um, to be freed from that. But even if you don't correspond with all of that, Every one of us kind of floats through life and unless we have keen spiritual illumination and insight, we can lose the bigger picture of what's really going on. And even though we can read a text like we did last week about all these incredible blessings, unless God does something within our heart and our spirit, they kind of just go in and out one ear and then we move on to life and we have this nervous anxiety and we go through each day and we just think, oh, what am I doing? And so what we need is spiritual eyes to see and experience this true spiritual reality we live in. Uh, and that's really the point of this passage. So Paul is gathering the, um, the Ephesians, really, in his letter, and then he's going to inform them of how he's praying for them. And the one thing he wants them to understand is this, and it's the sentence I just said. We need spiritual eyes to see and experience our true spiritual reality. We live so much in the present, but Paul wants to bathe them in this fresh perspective which enables them to live in the present differently because of what's actually coming and what they already have. So to go through this great prayer of Paul, which you won't be surprised now, is actually also just one sentence in the Greek. Slightly shorter, but still only one sentence. Um, we're going to go through in three points. and um, We're going to look at, first point, Paul's prayer of thanksgiving. Paul's prayer in point two for illumination. And point three, Paul's prayer for knowledge. Uh, and I trust that as we go through this, the Lord will start to work in us that we would have a spirit of wisdom and understanding. So point number one, a prayer of thanksgiving. Let's read verse 15 and 16 again. It's very instructive. These are not just words that Paul kind of just, you know, copies and pastes into all of his letters when he's writing one. These are spirit-inspired and from the heart of Paul. For this reason, because I've heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers." This is not just an interlude from Paul going from his introduction to his praise to whatever else he wants to talk about. This is a hallmark characteristic of the Apostle Paul. Read through the Apostle Paul's letters and you will see he is one of the most thankful men you will ever meet. His heart wells up in thankfulness whenever he considers the people he's ministering to and the churches he's trying to send letters to. Paul um, is thanking them because of two things you see in the passage. Because he's heard of their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and because of their love toward all the saints. You see, Paul planted this church in Ephesus and this letter is likely written to that church but also probably was a circular letter spread, spread around the Asia Minor region. And so Paul hadn't been in Ephesus for about nine years when he wrote this letter. And in that time, we know from the book of Acts that the word of the Lord went mightily throughout this area. So Paul is likely writing to many people he's never met. Because originally, the first people he met, he met about 12 people. They became Christians. And then slowly and surely, the church grew over the three years that he was there. But eventually, the church spread throughout the whole region so that everyone was knowing the word of the Lord. And we read that in Acts 19. And so Paul now is reporting back to them, I've heard of the increase of the church. And I know that you believe in the Lord Jesus. And that causes him to be incredibly thankful. He's thankful that these men and women have turned from darkness to light. He can't get over the fact that these guys were on their way from hell and now are destined for heaven. And the evidence of their faith, the faithfulness they have to Christ, is the second thing he thanks God for, their love toward all the saints. How does he know that the church in Ephesus and Asia Minor truly have faith? Well, they have love toward all the saints. He can see from their sacrificial love that they are true followers of Christ. And so as a result, Paul surveys these two things. And what does it say? What does he do? He does not cease in prayers of thanksgiving. The Jewish custom was to pray morning, midday, and noon. And in all those prayers, you can imagine the Apostle Paul just going, I can't believe it, Lord. Thank you for the Ephesian Christians that they believe in you and that they love all people. And I get it now, um, the Apostle Paul. As a pastor of a church, it's not hard for whenever I think of you guys to begin to start thanking God for your faith and your love. It's not something I take for granted ever. We could have gathered as a church plant and done everything with a bad attitude. <laughs> we could have done everything biting and fighting and making you know, disunity. But instead, this church has come together in love and in unity and in joy. And because of that, my heart wells up in gratefulness and thankfulness. You see, that kind of love and faith doesn't happen naturally, which is why Paul thanks God for it, because it came from him. So the first thing Paul does is he he opens with a prayer of thanksgiving. But this prayer is not just an interlude, it's instructive. You see, for the Apostle Paul, thanksgiving is a vital element to living a true spiritual life. Because for the Apostle Paul, he sees behind the physical reality and sees the spiritual reality. That is, that God is at work in the Ephesian Christians. And it's the same here today. God is at work in these Parramatta Christians, wherever you're at, if you're in Parramatta or beyond. That if you're a believer in Christ, God is already at work in you. And because of those things, as your pastor, I give thanks. But all together as a church, we can give thanks for one another. So as we survey this first kind of prayer, a question I have for you is, how is your prayers of thanksgiving going? You see, these prayers aren't just here to inform us of what Paul did. I mean, oh, that was nice for Paul. And then for us, we can just pray imprecatory prayers against each other. No, the point of this here is for us to go, this is how Paul prayed spirit-led prayers. Now, for us, we too are called to spirit-led prayers of thankfulness. So how is your thankfulness going for the brothers and sisters who believe in the Lord and love all the saints in your heart? How's that going? One way to kind of sense how that's going is to look at your prayer life and go, how much time do I spend just thanking God for people? Just calling faces to mind and thinking, I thank God for them and 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 and just having a praise session and thanking God for how he's at work. One of the ways that if you are not doing so well in Thanksgiving is to ask yourself this question... Uh, This is from C.J. Mahaney, the founder of Southern Grace. He says, Are you more aware of God's prior activity in people's lives or their present deficiencies? So we can't be thankful for people if we're more aware of their present deficiencies and where they need to grow. Instead, we need to be more aware of God's prior activity. And that's exactly what Paul is doing here. He can see God's prior activity in the Ephesians and that leads him to thanksgiving. So in your life, as you pray and you walk um, out your faith, are you aware of God's prior activity in the people around you, in your family, in your church family and beyond? And is that leading you to pray prayers of abundant, unceasing thankfulness? You see, in order to pray those type of prayers, we need new spiritual eyes. Because it's so easy to see fault, and criticism, and the one thing that someone didn't do and missed the 99 things that they did do, or is it just me, right? (laughs) Uh, And so Paul's prayer here is not an interlude, it's instructive. It's instructive for us as a church. One of the things I want us to be as a church is an extremely, unceasingly grateful church. As we serve on rosters, and we do this so well, to thank one another for every act of service that they do. Because every act of service is an act of love toward the saints. Someone got here early and filled up the coffee machines and made coffees for you and put signs out so you could find when to park if you're a visitor and serving in kids and, you know, organized Shane and Shane. All that was done to serve you. And so cast your mind upon those things, fill your heart up with gratitude and then redirect it to the Lord and you will find an enlightening effect upon your soul. So that's Paul's prayer, the first prayer, a prayer for thankfulness. But that's not all that Paul prays for. Point two, a prayer for illumination. You see, Paul is aware that you cannot grasp or understand the amazing spiritual blessings or the greatness of our spiritual reality without the aid and help of the Holy Spirit. Um, I felt this last week, as I've already mentioned, that you can say all these things, and you can preach all these sermons, you can sing all these songs, you can read verse after verse, but unless the Spirit of God falls upon people and quickens their heart, it'll just go straight out the other ear and have no effect on your life. Isn't that true for you sometimes? You can hear the world, you know, not here, but you can hear elsewhere, the world's most amazing sermons, and then kind of walk away as if you heard nothing. Why is that? Well, it's because we need something to happen within us. Otherwise, we cannot receive it truly. And that's why Paul turns now to this desperate prayer that God would work in the Ephesian Christians. Let's read verse 17 again and 19. So, remembering you in my prayers, and there, now he's going to informing us the content of his prayers. The petition that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ The Father of glory may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe. You see, in this prayer, Paul kind of does two things, right? If you split the verse up, first he prays for illumination, that they would know, or sorry, rather, that they would have a spirit of wisdom and revelation, having the eyes of their heart enlightened. And then he goes on to pray and ask that they would understand and know three things, the hope, their inheritance, and their power. So we're going to deal with those three things in our next point, in point three. Let's deal with the first bit there, verses 17 and 18, this prayer for illumination. So what what is going on here in this prayer? Well, you see, Paul is praying to God the Father, the Father of glory. So he recognizes that he needs God in this for them. And he asks for this particular request, that the Ephesian Christians, and indeed us, would have a spirit, not just a spirit, but the spirit, of wisdom and of revelation. What does that mean? A spirit of wisdom and revelation. Um, if you have an old ESV translation it says, "Our spirit of wisdom and revelation," the new one says, "The spirit with a capital S." It's hard to tell in the original what Paul's intent was, but I believe um, it is the spirit, the Holy Spirit, who gives wisdom and revelation. So what are those two things? What is, what is Paul warning the Ephesian Christians to have? Well, first, wisdom. Wisdom is to see the world God's way and to know how to live in it. Wisdom, they need from the Holy Spirit, the ability to see the world God's way and to know how to walk in it, to live in it. That's wisdom. And then secondly, they need Revelation. Not crazy you know, visions and dreams necessarily, but the revelation of the mystery of the gospel, which Paul talked about all throughout the book of Ephesians. That they would have revealed to them the truth that the Christ came and died in their place for their sin and that God has a plan for the entire cosmos to unify everything in Christ. They need a spirit of wisdom to know how to walk in this world and of revelation to know kind of where this world is going. That's what they need. And that's what we need today as well. You know, in your workplace, in your home, in your family, we can get lost in the details. We can get lost in the to-dos and what we're trying to get done and what we're hoping for in the future. And the spiritual realities sometimes don't cut through. We need God to refresh us through his Holy Spirit so that we can see, how do you want me to walk out my faith here at work? How do you want me to go about living for you with my friends and my family? What's, your, what's the future of the world? You know, we can look on with such fear about the future, potentially. I don't know what you think about it with the political and climate and all that. And we can get anxious and like, oh, I just used a disposable cup. Have I ruined the world? Well, Paul's saying, no, no, we need a spirit of revelation so that we can know what God's plan is for the future. In fact, this spirit of revelation and wisdom is not just the spirit we received, it's the same spirit that the Lord Jesus Christ received. Um, if you go back to Isaiah chapter 11, uh, you can see that um, where this kind of comes from, where Paul is drawing upon this. So Isaiah chapter 11, it's an incredible prediction of what will happen um, through Christ. And you see almost the exact same wording here. here. You see, Jesus himself was filled with this same spirit, to not live as the world presents itself, but to live with spiritual eyes, to actually understand what really is going on, not by our physical eyes or our physical ears, but spiritual insight, which is why he goes on um, in verse 18 to say, um, that you may have a spirit of wisdom revelation The enlightening of your eyes, of your heart. Sorry, I'll read it properly, not off the top of my head. That would be better. Having the eyes of your heart enlightened. So what does does that mean, to have the eyes of our heart enlightened? Well, in biblical speak, the heart is the, the functional center of our personal universe. Our heart believes and thinks and trusts and makes all of our decisions for us. The heart is what we desire. It's where worship comes from. It's what drives you day by day is your heart. So Paul is praying that the eyes of their heart would kind of open up so that they can see the world. Actually, they actually thought it was in the gut. But anyway, they could see the world the way God sees it and have refreshment and actually then change their desires to be in line with his desires. That they would live by the true spiritual reality. But it's not just vague knowledge. Um, at the end of verse 17, we see that it's in the knowledge of Him. We don't just want insight so we can predict, predict the, new, the, the next change in stock trends or you know, where to invest our money. That's not that kind of revelation. It's in the knowledge of Him. To know God truly is the greatest spiritual blessing. To actually know him personally and have a relationship with him is what Paul wants for them. He can't make it happen. He's pleading with God that they would have that so that they would know him better. See, there's a big difference between knowing about God and knowing him personally. There's a big difference between knowing what honey tastes like and actually have tasted honey for yourself. You see, I could get up here and if you've never tasted honey, I could explain it all night or morning um, and try and describe it to you, but you would never really understand. The moment you have it on your tongue for the first time, that sweetness, that pleasure, that viscosity about it, you'd be like, wow, this is honey, honey. Have you ever tried honey? That's what we'd be like. It's the same with spiritual realities. Until you've tasted them for yourself, until the eyes of your heart have been enlightened, until you have a spirit of wisdom and revelation... You will never truly know him. And so Paul is desperately praying for the Ephesians that they would have that as their reality. Knowledge of God in the depth of their being so that they would know how to live in his world. So that's Paul's prayer for illumination. That was point number two. But what exactly now does Paul want them to see? He's going to kind of outline three things that he wants them to know. So you've got the logic. Paul is kind of seeing spiritually. He starts thanking God because he sees God at work in the church. Then he starts to ask God that they would have new eyes to see what really is happening so that they can live in true reality. And then in the third petition, he's now saying, these are the three things that I want the church to get. So point number three, a prayer for knowledge. Let's read verse 18 and 19 again. That you may know what is the hope to which he has called you. That's number one. What are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe. Massive. Like you could just read them and move on and you think, oh, what happened? But we're going to slow down and kind of sit in them so that we would also understand these three things. Um, And then that power that Paul talked about there, he then riffs on it through verse 20 to 23, and we'll spend most of our time there. So Paul wants them to understand, firstly, the hope to which he has called you. The hope to which he has called you. Again, it's so easy to lose sight of the future reality we have stored up for us in heaven. We live so much in the now, addicted to the now, addicted to the the next thing that pops up on our scroll or on Instagram or Facebook or Snapchat or whatever else is happening. We live addicted to like the new and what's, what's gonna happen in the immediate. But Paul wants them to know something much further and much more secure, the hope to which God has called you. Do you know, Christian brother and sister, if you are in Christ, you have a secure and eternal hope stored up for you in heaven, that can never be taken from you? Do you know that one day you will reign with Christ forever as an adopted son or daughter, inheriting the kingdom of God, living in perfect unity with Christ and the Father and the Spirit, enjoying Him for all eternity? That is our hope. That is the true and certain hope. And we need to fix our eyes on that day so that we can truly live this day. And only we can have that through the Holy Spirit. So he wants the Ephesian Christians to know that hope so that they live differently in the day that they're in today. Secondly, he wants them to know this the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. The riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. What he's saying there is this. One thing that we constantly miss, and actually one thing that came out in that study in, for the millennials, is that they feel connected to the world, but disconnected from the people around them. Something like 40% of millennial people feel as though they have no deep connection with anyone close to them. Now, I hope that's not the case for you today, but if it is, this verse speaks into that. Because this verse says... That you, if you're a child of God, are so loved by God, so treasured by God, that he defines you, the church, his chosen people, as his inheritance. We, actually, in this verse, are the glorious inheritance of God. So when the world wraps up, what does God get at the end of it? Us. It's a scandalous truth. I I, I still don't really get that. Like, I still don't think how that's good for God, but His Word says it, so I'm going to believe it. But that's the reality. No matter how unloved you feel, or how disconnected you feel, or how alone, uh, potentially maybe if you're single and you're struggling and wrestling with all of that, you are loved. You are God's inheritance because, not because you're lovely you're not. Um, No, you are in some way. But because of what Christ has done, because he bought you with his blood. It's so easy to lose sight of that. In fact, when suffering comes and trouble comes, we start to think, oh, God doesn't like me. God hates me. God wants to just squish me out. This verse tells you, tell your soul the exact opposite. No, I may be in trial But I'm only in trial so that he can produce more fruit out of me. This isn't punishment. This is ultimately so that he can redeem me and have me as his inheritance, as a more pure and sanctified child of him. That's what's going on in trouble and trial. But yet, the eyes of our heart, unless they're enlightened and illumined by the Spirit, will believe the lies of the enemy and the lies of this world. And we need that change in our spirit so that we can truly believe this truth. Third, the third thing he wants them to understand through this spirit of wisdom and revelation is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe. He, he multiplies words of power here. He uses almost every word in the Greek. Immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe. In Ephesus, one of the things we saw in the book of Acts is that it was a very spiritual city. Um, Even with exorcisms and crazy things happening, there was um, the temple of Artemis, uh, lots of cultic worship, lots of demonic worship, false pagan worship going on. And so in this church, there was this battle of which gods are more powerful? Who's got the real upper arm in this? And Paul wants to remind them, we do. It's not the powers of this age, but it's actually the power of God. And not only that, although we feel weak and small for the Ephesians against the Roman Empire, we have the immeasurably great power of God toward us. It seems incredible, like for us just sitting here in our little seat, the immeasurable greatness of his power toward you. Oh man, it doesn't really feel like that. But he goes on to explain what that looks like in the rest of the little section there. So he he tells us four things about that power and the reality of it. First, according to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead. So the immeasurable greatness of his power is demonstrated in the resurrection of the Son of God from death. And that power is in you and toward you and for you. The death is not the end. God has made an end of death eventually and we will all reign and live forever in eternity. And that power that can do that is for us now. Secondly, he goes on and says, and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. The second thing, the second demonstration of that power is that God not only rose Christ from the dead, he then seated him at the right hand of the Father above all demonic powers. That's basically what he's saying here. Above every name that you could name in your magical incantations to the gods, you know the so-called gods, they're actually demons, um, that you believed in in Ephesus. Jesus is above all those names. He's seated at the right hand of God and he rules and he reigns toward you. For you, in you. Number three: He put all things under his feet. So this power raises Christ from the dead, seats him in the heavenly realms, and then thirdly, puts everything underneath Jesus Christ. We live in a culture which ridicules Jesus. Um, we can often sometimes join in in the laughter. Unaware of Christ's ascension and his seat at the throne of God, but the reality is is that Christ is in heaven and everything is underneath his foot. And he could crush it in a second. That's not his plan, but he could. Every power, every world leader, every world army, every piece of machinery, intellectual, technological, is under the power of Jesus Christ right now. And that power is operating. Toward us who believe, it's mind-boggling. Like I, I don't even understand it. Which is why we need a we need a spirit of wisdom and revelation, enlightening our eyes. What this verse is talking about here is that God actually has a plan for the universe to restore it back to that Genesis one reality. Genesis one and two talk of a world where God creates the world and then sets man over it, and man redeems and uh, takes and doesn't redeem it. Man rules over the world in dominion and power. Now Christ, the new Adam, comes to be that ruler. Everything is now under his feet. And we're joined in on that. And we get in on the plan. And that's where he goes in verse four. And he gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. So Jesus Christ is the head of the worldwide church, this church in particular and the church everywhere. And his fullness fills the church and then God's plan through the church is then to fill the whole earth. doesn't feel like it, but that's what is happening. In fact, if you zoom out a little bit and you think about it, Paul was praying this for the Ephesians in what, AD 62. The gospel had gone maybe as far as Rome. But now we sit 2,000 years later and the gospel has planted churches all over the world. Bit by bit, year by year, century by century, God is filling the earth with reverberations of his glory through the praise of his saints in the gathering of local churches everywhere. And we are a part of that. We, through some crazy spiritual reality, are part of the fullness of Christ filling all the earth. We saw in Ephesians 1, verse 9 through 10, that that was God's plan, verse 10. God's plan for the fullness of time was to unite all things in him, things in heaven and on earth. Ephesians 3.10 talks about that God set the church apart to display to the cosmic powers his ability to bring all the peoples of the world together. And that's what this whole letter is trying to communicate to the Ephesians. There's a bigger thing happening here, and we need to know that too. John Piper says it well. I'm going to try and quote John Piper in every single sermon. (laughs) God's power towards us intends to fill the universe with the authority of his crucified and risen son. And though it takes your breath away, he intends to make us, the church, those who believe, the means of that fullness, the embodiment of that fullness. That is, where he rules, we will rule. He created humankind in the beginning to inhabit a beautiful creation and to subdue it and enjoy it and reflect his glory in it. That is what he intends to do through the new humanity called the church. He will fill the creation with all his fullness of glory. And you, that's us, will be that fullness. His body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. This is the power of God at work toward you now. It's mind-boggling. It's hard to comprehend all those kind of multiplication of terms there. But to bring it all together, it's this. That God's plan for the universe is to unite all things in Christ through the church, through the preaching of the gospel. So we can be entirely confident of what we're doing here this morning. Because it doesn't depend on man's effort. We have the cosmic power of the Lord of the universe doing it for us. And we're a part of that plan. We're one little reverberation of his glory that's going forth and we're trying to invite other people to join in. Paul wants the Ephesian Christians to understand and know this, the hope to which they have been called, that they are God's glorious inheritance, that he loves them that much and that they actually have an immeasurably great power at work towards them. The power that rose Christ from the dead, the power that seated Christ above every name, the power that made him the head of the church, and the power that is filling the entire universe with his glory. And that's at work in this little room, in us. You can see why Paul is desperate for the spirit of wisdom and understanding to enlighten the eyes of their heart. And I'm with him in that, because it's too hard to comprehend all these things. We need to believe the right story about the world. We need new spiritual eyes to see and experience the true spiritual reality of what is going on. At times we can subtly believe the post-Christian, post-Jesus, post-church message that is promulgated through our culture. That's not reality. The world is not post-Christian. The world is not post-church. It never will be. The world is being filled with the glory of God, bit by bit by bit. Jesus told a parable that the kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed planted. It's the smallest seed, but it grows and grows and grows, and its branches cover and go wider, and all the birds of the air find their shade in him. That's actually what's happening. Don't believe the lie. And don't believe the lie that we're weak and pathetic. It's not true. We are, naturally, but through him we have every power. We need new spiritual eyes to see and experience our true spiritual reality. So in closing, what do we do with all this? Well, very simply, I think two things. Number one, pray this for yourself pray this constantly for yourself there's a reason why we don't experience the fullness of this it's because we often are unaware that we need a fresh renewing of these truths we can read them and hear them and sing them but unless the lord falls upon us we won't taste and see them And if you're in a season at the moment where you aren't experiencing any joy fluttering when you read these verses, whether privately or corporately, and you're not experiencing much of the fullness of God or the power of God or the hope of your calling or the fact that you are the glorious inheritance of God, can I commend to you this? Approach God in prayer and plead with Him to give you a spirit of wisdom and revelation plead with him to enlighten the eyes of your heart to know this truly. You see, we can't make it happen, but we can position ourselves. We can put ourselves in the way for God to then fall upon us. When Elijah was challenging the prophets of Baal, they set up their altar and danced around and cut themselves and waited for the fire of God to fall down and nothing happened. And Elijah made the altar and then poured water all over it and, totally put himself in a position where unless God showed up, nothing would happen. He positioned himself for God to move. Now, God could have chosen in that moment to humiliate Elijah and for nothing to happen. But instead, God falls upon there and the fire of heaven comes down and lights up that altar. In some kind of analogous way, that's how the Christian life works. We can set the altar. We can kind of... Erect it, wait it, but we have to wait for God to come upon us. So plead with him and continue to position yourself before him. And he will eventually fall upon you and give you fresh fire and fresh understanding of these true realities. Secondly, pray this for others. This is what Paul is doing. He's pleading for the church. When was the last time you prayed that the people you love most would have a spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of God. That God would enlighten the eyes of their heart to comprehend the hope to which they're being called to. Make this a constant element and part of your prayers. Because God you know, loves to answer these prayers. These are spirit-informed prayers. Pray this for others so that they can know what you know. And thirdly, going back to the first point, Make constant thanksgiving the diet of your prayer. See with spiritual eyes the people in this room and the people that call upon Christ and look to them and thank God for them and you will find some of the taste of that joy in your heart again as you see God at work and you fill your soul with these realities. In our world, in our sin, in the darkness of our fallen age, The darkness can cloud our mind. And that's why we need spiritual eyes to see and understand our true spiritual reality. That Jesus is risen. That Jesus reigns. That Jesus is coming back again and will restore this earth bit by bit to the praise of his glorious grace. Would you join me in prayer? Lord God, I want to thank you that you have given many in this room faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and love toward all the saints. I want to thank you so much that you are at work in this church doing your thing for your glory. Lord, I want to call upon you and ask that you would give us the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of you. That the eyes of our heart would be enlightened that we may know the hope to which we've been called. May we truly know it, Lord. May we live with our one eye on heaven. May we know that we are truly loved, that we are your glorious inheritance. Would you help us to believe that in our heart of hearts, that what was done for us at the cross means that we are dearly loved by you. And Lord, may we know the immeasurably great power that you have toward us who believe. Lord, would you fill us with that power? Would we live confident, expectant lives, not shrinking back in the age of post-Christianity, but living full of faith, living full of joy, living full of hope and expectation because of what you are doing and can do in the world. God, would you give us new eyes Would you help us to live for your glory? And we thank you that you are at work in us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.